0: Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. The legal teams in the money laundering case of former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort got a bit of scolding from the federal trial judge yesterday federal judge Amy Berman Jackson said that there had been too many secret filings in the high-profile criminal prosecution and that she would make several of them public. But several minutes later, she closed the courtroom to the public for two hours to talk privately with prosecutors and defense lawyers, reviewing Manafort's bail package and a request by lawyers for his co-defendant, Rick Gates, to leave the case. Joining me is William Banks, professor at Syracuse University Law School. Bill, many defendants would like to keep the their proceedings and papers private, but they're not allowed to. What would justify all the sealed documents in this case?
1: You know, it, it, it's a little bit hard to tell since we can't ourselves see that information right now. But from the uh, what the judge said and the reporting so far, it sounds like much of it was ordinary bank account information and perhaps names of family members associated with the defendants. And those things are, of course, routinely kept uh, private, and it's possible to redact uh, the pertinent documents and then let them become public. And I imagine Judge Jackson will see to it that that sort of thing is done. If there are others that are secret uh, on account of, uh, you know, sensitive information pertaining to national security, we would probably learn about that as a category, but I haven't seen any indication that that's so.
0: The, The judges said the lawyers are arguing that the details should be kept private because of media attention to the legal fight. And so she did instruct Manafort's attorneys to file a redacted version of their latest submission regarding financial assets to secure his release on bail. I take it that he doesn't want his finances being revealed, but is media attention to this a good enough reason in a case involving money laundering and hiding offshore bank accounts?
1: No, it's not. And then Judge Jackson, I think, expressed Public Dissatisfaction with that tactic yesterday and will continue to do so. the fact that the media as well as the American people are interested in this prosecution is all the more reason for the, for the information to be made public you now recently, as you know there was a, there was a charge made uh, that Manafort himself might have been tied to uh, to Russia in his previous dealings and perhaps to someone who was uh, in, involved in the Russian collusion, potential conclusion, or at least the interference with the 2016 election, so that the case against him could be broadening at the very time that he's fighting to make it go away.
0: When you look at the docket in this case, you see one thing after another, motion to seal, motion to seal, seal document, seal document. But as yes. far as the, you know, there is a Apparently going to be a change in Gates' legal team, but it seems to be taking quite a while. Why would that information be under seal?
1: It, it would only be under seal until such time as the new appointment is officially made. I, I thought that they were close to doing that yesterday. Uh, You know, to protect the confidentiality of any negotiations that are ongoing between one of the defendants and potential counsel, that's a a protected uh, uh, conversation or communication. But I'm sure once new counsel is appointed, I think we know who it's going to be, then that'll be as public as is Manafort's.
0: I want to look at a different topic now in the Mueller investigation, and that is regarding Mueller's request to interview the president. His president's lawyers are fighting this request, and here are the arguments that they've apparently been making against an interview, broadly, that the White House has given Mueller unprecedented access to the White House documents and people, that there's no stated crime, and that a 1990 decision by U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit during the Clinton administration puts the burden on prosecutors to exhaust all evidence avenues before turning to the president. Do any of these strike you as being winning arguments?
1: I don't think so. They're all credible arguments. And indeed, as, as we'll recall, uh, President Clinton was subjected to an interview by special counsel, part of it uh, being done on on a video conference. And I think some kind of arrangement along those lines might be made for President Trump. But he, he may decide to uh, let his lawyers call the shots here and fight this every step of the way. Or he may, as he said publicly before, be perfectly willing to talk to Mr. Mueller. I think if the, if if it becomes a legal fight over whether or not he testifies, uh, he may win some delay. But I think ultimately, because the special counsel has every right to learn whether what the president knows and whether anything that he knows might be uh, tied to culpability of anyone in his staff, is certainly uh, a worthwhile pursuit for Mr. Mueller's team.
0: Bill, Bill, one uh, defense that I hear often, and I'd like your take on it, is that since the president has the power to fire the FBI director for any reason, that can't be obstruction of justice. I mean, can you have a legal right to do something and it still is obstruction of justice?
1: Yes, I think clearly so. He does have the right to dismiss uh, the FBI director, but he may have on a prior occasion, uh, in dealing with Mr. Comey or someone else, uh, attempted to influence the direction or outcome of the investigation into Russian election interference. And doing so would be obstruction of justice, independent of his authority to deal with his personnel.
0: So in in about uh, 30 seconds here, Mueller has enforced the issue with a subpoena, but that could change. Will this case end up at the Supreme Court if there is a subpoena and a fight?
1: It's theoretically possible. Uh, I think all, all parties would like to avoid that. I think Mueller's team will do everything they can to reach a negotiated agreement with the White House concerning the president's testimony and many other things that are likely to come up along the way. You know, There are a lot of steps to this investigation.
0: There certainly are. Hard to keep up with it sometimes. Thanks so much, Bill. That's William Banks, a professor at Syracuse University Law School. Coming up on Bloomberg Politics, Policy, Power, and Law, Steve Bannon meets with White House lawmakers with White House lawmakers as he fights efforts to participate in the Russia probe. This is Bloomberg. You often hear about the conservatives versus liberals on the Supreme Court and that 5-4 split down ideological lines. What you don't hear about is four justices who are building a consensus in this time of sharp divides in our nation. Bloomberg Supreme Court reporter Greg Storr has written about the consensus builders, Chief Justice John Roberts, Justices Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, and Anthony Kennedy. Greg, the four justices are on different sides of the ideological spectrum. So tell us first just how different they are.
2: Hi, June. Yeah, they're they're definitely uh, coming from different places in terms of the ultimate answers uh, about what the Constitution protects. So when you see the big cases like the Obergefell gay rights case, uh, the Citizens United campaign finance ruling, uh, the uh, Shelby County Voting Rights Act ruling, those are all cases where these four justices ended up on different sides with uh, Stephen Breyer and Elena Kagan taking the liberal side, and uh, John Roberts and Anthony Kennedy generally taking the conservative side, but not always. So
0: what makes for this consensus?
2: Well, they all seem to have a commitment to the institutional integrity of the court. That's at least how they would describe it. They um, are uh, they they recognize, and John Roberts has talked about this, uh, that that there's a real cost when the court looks like it is split five to four on some of the biggest issues, and that it is uh, merely a bunch of political actors. And they, they, you know, all four of them do, you know, share a desire to have something other than a five-four split to have a bigger group of justices. In a majority,
0: Greg, is this talked about in their meetings? Do they meet separately? Even <laughs>
2: um, that, that, that that's a great question, and I wish I could tell you the exact answer. Uh, they, you know, as a general matter, they do most of their talking to one another you know, in a group altogether in one room, Uh, but certainly uh, when they get to the point that they're writing opinions, they do a lot of trading back and forth, and there is a lot of communication that goes on there. Uh, So it's hard to imagine there isn't a lot of back and forth within this, this group of four.
0: You mentioned an interchange during oral arguments between Chief Justice John Roberts and Elena Kagan. Is there some chemistry with these four as well?
2: Uh, there certainly is, yeah. The, the exchange I talk about in, in a courtroom was in this big case involving um, uh, the uh, Colorado baker who didn't want to make cakes for same-sex weddings, and uh, Justice Kagan wanted to ask another question, saw that, that the lawyer's time was running out, and she said, uh, so, you know, said, well, I'm sure you'll be given more time, and that's a prerogative of the Chief Justice. And so, so she, um, uh, she she looked sheepishly over at the chief justice, and she said, is that okay? <laughs> and he kind of gave her an exasperated look, and of course he did give the lawyer some more time.
0: So so um, there is that chemistry. What about the other justices? Are they just not willing to compromise?
2: They, they are much less willing to compromise. Uh, no doubt, and we can't always see what's going on behind closed doors, of course, but no doubt they are... Uh, it, it, um, willing to compromise on occasion, but much more frequently, the other five, uh, and three of them are on the right, and two of them are on the left, are, are going to say, I fundamentally disagree with the court, with what the court is doing here, and I'm not willing to compromise those fundamental beliefs. And I, I will often write an opinion to tell you why I think they're wrong.
0: You say that just, you write that Justice Scalia's death sort of set the groundwork for this consensus building. How?
2: Well, they you know, that was a time when you know, there was a 14-month period after Justice Scalia died, before Justice Gorsuch got confirmed, where they only had eight justices.
1: And they
2: had a lot of cases that uh, left some divisions there, and they wanted to didn't want to uh, be stuck four to four in, in very many of them. So they had to work together to find, find some way to, to get to five, um, and that is a time where... Um, uh, Justice Kagan has talked about this some um, publicly, where they had to work extra hard to try to, uh, you know, build some bridges and, and come up with something that would, would let them resolve the case. It was often very, very narrow, if you recall back in when they were dealing with the issue of... Uh, what religious groups like Little Sisters of the Poor had to, to do with regard to the contraceptive mandate from the Obama administration. Uh, they, they issued a ruling that was uh, somewhat inscrutable, but it at least was a consensus that, that resolved the case without just saying we're divided four to four on this.
0: Is that the way that they often manage to reach a consensus by making the opinion more narrow?
2: That is generally it. Yes, uh, you know, it is. Can it is the process of can you live with this? Um, it may not be exactly what what you want, but uh, if it is narrower, it makes it easier to get a larger number of justices. Uh, the other way it happens sometimes is when you're dealing with an emergency application, and. Um, Uh, You know, uh, some justices want to publicly say, I disagree with how this is taken care of, you know, maybe a death penalty, maybe, um, you know, whether some some voting changes go into effect. Um, And by not publicly dissenting uh, from a decision like that, you uh, suggest that there's a little bit bit, uh, broader agreement, even though there's not actually an opinion sometimes in those cases.
0: So there are a lot of hot-button issues that they have to face this term. Is the consensus going to hold, or do you think it might break down in the face of these really controversial issues? It
1: is certainly
2: going to be challenged. There are some issues. uh, For example, um, uh, very soon the Supreme Court's going to take up the issue of whether public sector workers have a right to uh, not pay the the fees that that support the union uh, that represents them. And that's an issue where we have seen this court in an earlier version when they only had eight justices divide four to four. So that's an issue where we know it's a sharply divided court. And no matter how well those four justices get along and no matter how, how uh, uh, good their chemistry is, uh, it may well be impossible for them to get together on a, de- on a decision like that.
0: The chief has been criticized by some conservatives for this consensus attitude. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, well, the, the, you know, the chief in some ways, and, and it really goes back to the the, the, the first decision on President Obama's health care law. You know, it's really disappointed conservatives who would like him to be more like a Clarence Thomas, or it increasingly appears a Neil Gorsuch, and uh, it, it's talk a little more bit more about first principles and not be willing to compromise. And, and their argument is, in part, uh, look, we need clarity in the law, and these narrow decisions uh, don't provide that that sort of clarity.
0: The chief has always had uh, a respect and a feeling for the court as an institution, and is it also because it is called Robert's Court? <laughs>
2: Well, I, I think it would be, be a great thought experiment uh, or a great parallel universe to see what the world would be like, if, what John Roberts would be like if he weren't the chief justice. Uh, there's no question that he feels a certain responsibility to look out for the institutional interests of the, the court as he sees, sees them. Uh, uh, whether you would do that as an associate justice, that'd be a great thing to think about.
0: Oh, we could go on forever. Unfortunately, we can't. Thanks so much, Greg. That's Greg Storr, Bloomberg News Supreme Court reporter. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg.